Welcome to the AD Esthete, hosted by me, Mitch Owens, the Decorative Arts Editor of Architectural Digest. In 2008, AD100 interior designer Michael S. Smith joined a select club when he was tapped to decorate the private quarters of the White House for Barack and Michelle Obama, America's first black president and first lady, their young daughters, Malia and Sasha, and the president's mother-in-law, Marion Shields Robinson. Twelve years later, Smith's detailed, insightful, and humorous memoir of that heady commission has been published by Rizzoli. Written by Margaret Russell, a former editor-in-chief of AD, Decorating History gives readers a ringside seat to Smith's transformation of the executive mansion, a decorative job where every element, from the Native American pottery in the Oval Office to the shape of a curtain, was purposefully imbued with meaning, presented for eight years. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, Michael, my first question after reading your absolutely um, gripping book about decorating the Obama White House called Decorating History, how do you get the leader of the free world to agree to red curtains in the Oval Office? (laughs) Well, uh, you get the leader of the free world to agree to red curtains the way you would get kind of anybody who's used to following their own sense of uh, self and direction and stuff. I, I, I led through example and through uh, documentation. So I showed him sort of several portraits around, you know, sort of in the White House that had red behind them, this sort of, you know, there's a famous Lincoln portrait, there's a famous George Washington portrait. And they all had, one of the things they showed shared is this kind of oddly similar iconic idea of this sort of piece of red fabric, which was always in the sort of sort of classical gesture that's in, in all these presidential portraits or these sort of, you know, kind of important portraits. And I think it it just sort of speaks to this sort of, I don't know, I wonder if it's about a banner or, you know, commander in chief or mm-hmm. passion or something, but it 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 felt like the right idea. If you go back through history, I think Reagan had a kind of a corally uh, almost terracotta kind of color right. in the Oval Office. But I felt that for President Obama, the rest of the room was fairly neutral. And I felt that this sort of bold, sort of red, sort of set a tone and talked about his seriousness and his impassioned view of leadership and what he was doing. So I, it just felt, it felt like the right idea. But I'm, I'm taking that red is perhaps not one of his favorite colors. No, I, I don't think he just, no, I don't, I think he just needed to understand what the, you know, listen, he, he, I say this all the time, he's such a Socratic thinker that you have to come in with a good case, right? A good story of, and a good rationale for why something should be. And then, and then he's, he's quite good. I think mm. he, he, there was a, there was a choir of, of his, you know, kind of people who worked around at the White House who felt that blue was appropriate. And I didn't think that was going to be exciting <laughs> or dynamic enough. I think I said that it would look like American Airlines or something. I, I was, I, had a, <laughs> I disparaged it for its uh, 
lack of heroism. And then some people thought there should be white curtains, which felt, you know, and it's like you go through all of these, these past white houses and you look at everyone's curtains and, you know, I just felt that the red, there was a direct correlation between this very modern president and this very iconic idea of the depiction and documentation of presidents of the past and this mm. kind of red banner-esque idea of the red. So that's, so that was it. And he was, he was good. He changed the red. Initially it was much brighter and he wanted something that was more faded. And Your, your book is so full of a really rich array, array of photographs historical, personal, candid, the White House. But of course, I was studying the few pictures I could see of their house in Chicago and getting a sense of color palette and getting a sense of what they lived with in Chicago. Can you talk a little bit about seeing that house for the first time and processing their personal style, which you were going to have to amplify, adjust, and carry across the country? I mean, it was, it, it's so interesting. It's a really good question. Going to the house, and there's a funny story, I think I say in the book, where the driver was, you know, it was in December. It was really dark, even like at three in the afternoon or something. And, and the driver said to me, you know, the Obamas live around here. And I was like, huh, interesting. Um, <laughs> it was a really pretty house. There were like classic elements, like beautiful antique carpets and objects that you know, they had acquired over years and lots and lots of books. And then it's interesting, there was a big kind of red Chinese dining table that was a sort of burnt kind of red. It's interesting you bring that up. So I, I think that it was beautiful wood. The library was great. It had all these sort of interesting, again, things that he'd collected or they both had collected over the years, you know, they're sort of Asian art pieces and stuff. It was, it was a very sophisticated, I've said it, um, before it was a very sophisticated kind of professor's house. I mean, it was yeah, very- Yeah, I was thinking there, it's an academician's atmosphere. Yeah, and then very Chicago-centric. Someone had, I think Holly Hunt had sold them two sofas from the showroom or something that were very neutral. I can't remember what the fabric was, but that were in there. So there's a kind of, you know, Chicago-centric connectivity there. And, but it was, it was great. And then the girls' rooms were wonderful. The girls' rooms had just kind of been redone. And they were, you know, one, I can't remember, maybe Malia had a canopy bed or something. You know, they were, mm -hmm. they were completely appropriate and charming and comfortable and very much infused with, you know, people who are highly intelligent and highly well-read, you know, it was just, it was really that kind of thing. It was, it was, there was no ornament or accessories, my favorite word. Right. Um, but there were things that meant something to them and everything had a purpose or a reason for being. And I think everything from his Grammy, I think that he had won for, for the book on tape for his first book to things that were clearly related to his childhood a couple, you know, as part of his childhood in Indonesia and things like that. And they were, they were things that, you know, pictures of them and the children and stuff that were meaningful and kind of beautifully presented. And I think it was exactly what you would think as a kind of interior look into this family, which mm -hmm. was, you know, smart and not pretentious and, but qualitative, right? Everything was sort of purposeful and qualitative. And I think it really gave me my kind of non-communicatively or non-verbally non 
it kind of communicated to me my kind of marching orders, which, which was everything meant something and everything had to have a reason, whether it were red, was red curtains or the chandeliers in the girls' room or you know the paintings in the president's private study. Everything had to be held up to the same criteria, which is why is it here, who made it, what does it mean, and how does it relate to us? And, how's, and, and, and the, the thing that Mrs. Obama always added is how does it relate to the next family or to the family after that? How are we mm-hmm. you know, propelling this idea of the White House forward and making it functional, comfortable, and evocative of what America is? There's a passage in your book, which um, you wrote with Margaret Russell, a former editor-in-chief of Architectural Digest. And I wanted to bring it out because I kept going back and reading this line over and over because I felt that it amplified what was going on in the rooms that you created in the residence. And that is, and you were speaking from a political standpoint, a cultural standpoint, for any of us who felt like we were others, whether we were gay, Jewish, female, African-American, Latino, or anyone who had ever felt marginalized or disenfranchised, this was a new, fresh moment for America. And from a political and a cultural standpoint, it definitely caught the feelings and the emotions of, of this first black president, this first African-American family in a house that Mrs. Obama famously and accurately pointed out was partially built by slaves. But when you go through the rooms that you created, I got that same feeling from your quote, paintings by African-American artists, Peter Schlesinger, Urns, um, <laughs> gay artist and photographer, the chandelier in, was it Malia's room, made by South African artisans yeah, from Detritus. Yeah. Was that in your mind as you were putting this together? Because it's, it seemed to me a, a very comfortable, beautiful, family-oriented residence that had a lot of symbolism in everything. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, to go back to the original idea, which it's interesting, I haven't really thought about that until you sort of brought up the idea of their house and what I derived from going to it. But I think that this idea of things being infused with meaning or being, you know, I mean, look, the, the thing, if I had to call the book something that I didn't call it, or if I had to crystallize the whole idea of being in an Obama world and Obama orbit and sort of understanding how they think, it's really about being thoughtful. And I think that what it, what it encouraged you to do because I didn't go out and say, you know, oh, I need X amount of African-American artists or mm-hmm. X amount of, it's really interesting because people would propose art to lend institutions and y- y- there would be the most obvious art on top, right? It would be mm-hmm. sort of what you would think that, that uh, you would offer. And then we'd look deeper and kind of think more, you know, more impactfully. I mean, things like, you know, Hopper, as one of the president's favorite artists, which we put in the Oval Office, are certainly not, you know, I mean, Hopper, I think, was sort of actually kind of probably fairly anti-Semitic and racist, apparently, to to what I'm hearing these days. But I think it was just about trying to make choices and decisions about on in many different, you know, sort of many different playing fields at the same time. So, 
chandeliers, I needed chandeliers for the bedrooms, for the girls, for example. The rooms, the thing that I, I was the biggest surprise is when you show up at the White House, the upstairs rooms, and I had never, I'd only been downstairs. It's, you know, by tradition, you're never upstairs until moving day. And I had diagrams and photographs and the thing. And I talked to Mrs. Reagan and I, you know, had all these different, all this background of what it was going to be like. And the one thing that was completely shocking to me is how vertical, how given the proportions of the rooms, how tall they are. And so I realized why there were always chandeliers in these rooms, just to really bring them down to kind of more humanist scale. So chandeliers for girls' rooms, they were these sort of Georgian English crystally kind of chandeliers and they seemed really inappropriate for really young girls but I didn't want to put some wacky you know kind of uh, you know chandelier of a bird or something that was right. going to be completely taken out of context and out of a sense of place so those predicaments those problems that that came up over the eight years were always you would sit down and really think it's like putting apples in the Oval Office, right? As opposed to chrysanthemums or whatever. It was this idea of what, what is the messaging? How can we reiterate something that will resonate with them personally, but also will be somehow saying something about the culture, which is the kind of connectivity between the Obamas and who they are and what they represent and mm. what the White House had been and what it hadn't been. And it pertained to first generation immigrants who were American citizens who made things for the building. It pertained to, um, you know, second generation immigrant workshops that had, you know, had worked in, you know, the California, but never done anything for the White House. It, it was really literally, how can we make every decision, how can every decision touch the largest amount of people and affect the greatest amount of outcome for the, for the largest amount of people? And that is, some, this is, that's the sort of underpinning of everything you see coming out of the sort of collective of the Obamas before the White House, during mm. the White House, and after the White House. It's like you look at privilege of going, like I, I was so lucky because I got to go to see one of Michelle Obama's kind of book party things at the Forum in Los Angeles. And you see like thousands of people who are so, feel so touched by her and so connected to her. And so, and it's not a, um, of course there's a kind of putting somebody up on a pedestal but it's a it's it's like a there's a kind of connectivity that feels approachable. I mean, she talks about herself. It's funny because she just really, really nicely just tweeted something about the book. And I'm not really a big Twitter person, so I went on her Twitter account, and I think she describes herself as you know, South Side of Chicago, all this stuff, and like hugger and she or something. Right. And it's so funny, but I mean, she really that is for real. I mean, that is who she really is. I mean, if like. I mean, maybe not <laughs> these months, um, but I would be hard pressed for her to not hug somebody, you know, in out of joy, out of connectivity, you know, someone who is in distress. And, mm. you know, you, you just think about that natural empathy and how that we we're living in a world where empathy is kind of not, it's something that we so take for granted. And yet when you take it away, it's kind of like, shocking to, to think about decisions that are made without empathy or you know almost disregard and and disdain for empathy and so that's that's something that I think 
when you put it into real terms, nuts and bolts about making decisions about who makes the chairs and who delivers the chairs and where's mm. the fabric from and all those things, it's a discipline. And it was kind of hard to put yourself into the mindset of that constantly. But mm. then when you're in it, 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 you realize that it has these unexpected bonuses or acts or these, these moments, these flashes that come up that kind of kismet things that would happen that you'd be really, that just couldn't believe. And it was just a result of being thoughtful, right? Things that just happened that, that would touch people in a really profound way. So when you were able to finally get upstairs and start yeah. installing, I mean, you'd had a, a few months to put this all together. Yes? Yes. Tell me about the actual install. What were you installing on that inauguration day? I mean, I have, I have this cinematic moment of watching... Of, of this mindset of seeing Michael Smith and his staff running around like frenzied mice. Totally. I mean, it's, that's kind of what it was like. I, I knew there was limited things I could do, right? I mean, number one, the bushes of love the house in amazing shape, right? It was like ready to go. They had, they, had, they had moved out. They had left it in great order. Everything was kind of, it was terrific. It was ready for them to spend the night in with mm. very little, very little effort basically on my part. But there were certain things that were sort of super important to me was to, to make it feel um, sort of fresh for them, make changes that would be impactful. You know, the, the, I wasn't in charge, thank God, of hanging up all the clothes or putting away their books and stuff that they'd sent from Chicago, but that was actually happening around me. But I think that the big gesture that I could make was really bringing in all these contemporary paintings that were big scale and impactful and mm. you know that would really change the way the rooms felt and um, you know so the biggest thing I had was you know you have to remember too contrary to public or to much discussion this was the biggest inauguration in history and the security stuff the the circles of security that went out from the White House and checkpoints on stuff were kind of crazy. So logistically, I had to ask permission and got permission for one truck from the National Gallery to come in. And I had borrowed, you know, these paintings, and that was going to be really impactful. And then the other thing, which was really impactful, was that I wanted to switch out the bed that the bushes had slept on, only because it felt not, I mean, the bushes are terrific. I had nothing, it just, anyone, it felt like there was a kind of, almost, um, you know, just a heavy symbolism yeah. about sleeping in a new bed, right? And a new mattress and a new bed. And it just felt like it was strange. It's interesting because when we, my partner James and I arrived in Madrid, when he was named ambassador, the mattress was 12 years old of the bed. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, which there was like, uh -uh, I'm not sleeping on a 12 year old mattress for, you know, four other <laughs> ambassadors or something. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't quite like that, but it had, but it had a similar idea that this was a, a fresh day. This was a new president. Every president deserves a new bed. It was a little Keystone Cops. It was running around. It was trying to bring in photographs of them and throws and, you know, because clearly the Bushes had taken all their personal stuff with them. So it was a way of trying to personalize it. And, you know, in many levels, I, I mean, I talk about too, like I put I floated these gardenias next to their bed, you know, kind of on these, in these sort of beautiful dishes. I've sort of floated gardenias with this idea that 
while the new president and the first lady slept, they would have these visions of Hawaii or this kind of, mm -hmm. you know, it was trying, it was really trying to kind of, you know, humanize, personalize and, um, you know, kind of make them immediately have this retreat in these rooms because you were sort of above the shop, right? It's like, it's kind of hard to, it was, and the scale of everything is so kooky different than the house they'd been in and can't walk outside and, you know, all these crazy things. So there's a lot of anxiety and energy to moving them in. And, you know, the staff at the White House who are so wonderful, I mean, I have to say that's, I, I don't know if I gave in the book enough credit to the housekeepers and the butlers and the people who worked there for through president after president after president. And they were so excited. I mean, first, this idea of an African-American president was so exciting to many of them. And that was unbelievable. And they were there was such an energy and it was so impactful. And then also the fact that there were, you know, these girls, these young, adorable girls were moving yeah. to the White House. And there really hadn't been, I think, I, I guess maybe Amy Carter, but even Amy, I think, was a little bit older than the girls. And then Chelsea was a little bit older. I, I, you know, they were young. They were little, tiny kids. And I think that was something that was really exciting for everybody to, you know, to, to, to sort of be energized by. And there was a really interesting part of the book in the very beginning of developing the look of the rooms in the residence, the residential part of the White House, of Mrs. Obama, you know, saying, you know, what's important is the girls have got to be comfortable. It's there at the top of the list. The first team I ever got was she wanted the girls' rooms to be comfortable, fun, and with a pop of color. That was literally the term, pop of color. And so that's kind of what I did. You know, I, I kind of was thinking of things like Old Nest Magazine and Mount Vernon and all these things where there's like this sort of traditional, almost Americana feel, but with bright color. And there are screen, screens of, of wallpapers from Adelphi in their, in their rooms to sort of bring down the scale. And, you know, I wanted it to be the White House, but I wanted it to be a kind of fun, kid-like White House. But, you know, I, I just didn't want to walk in and go, you know, there's, it's, an, it's an undersea world or it's Hello Kitty. Or it's, <laughs> you know, I, I, wanted, I didn't want to lose the sense of place. Did you have discussions with the girls? I did. I did very early when I was in Chicago. I showed them fabric and they were adorable and, you know, picked. I think Malia picked this kind of very pretty turquoisey blue. And I think Sasha picked, which is very Sasha, like this pink. And I realized, I, I kind of, you could very quickly tell their personalities. It, it was really fun. And it's, it's the great, one of the great joys of this whole thing is I got to see those girls grow up and, you know, and be kind of around them. And they're unbelievable kids. Two of my favorite rooms that you did are the treaty room, which I think is one of the most exciting spaces the way you put it together, the detail that I think of in your career. I love Thank that trading you. room. It's, Thank you. I think that the grass cloth on the walls, the Native American motif stenciled, it, it felt historically grounded, but at the same time, as if all of that history had been turned inside out and made completely new. 
Well, it's, I mean, thank you. That's, I mean, that's amazing. It's interesting. My only bad review on Amazon is a woman who says that the whole house is too brown, which is interesting. And I've, I've kind of got all, James, like, you can't read the reviews. I'm like, I have to read my reviews. Okay? <laughs> so that you've, you've offset the pain. But no, it's interesting. I think, I think that room is tricky. I think that it had so many kind of meanings to it. There's, you know, the, the Kennedy version was so spectacular kind of. Hmm? I loved that room. I mean, it was very extreme and high Victorian, but magnificent. It's wild, wild west, please. I, yeah. It's like my favorite. But, but there was some, so there's something about the frontier aspect that I liked and I wanted to retain, but I wanted to kind of 2.0 it a little bit for, for President Obama because he's so a modern guy. And I, I just, and I knew kind of instinctively that that would be the room that he, you know, he's so, I don't think people quite realize what a serious sort of scholarly person is. I mean, he would be in that room until two thirty, three o'clock at night. I mean, he read, he reads and read everything. So someone would say something about the Oval Office. I remember when something came up or whatever, and, and some blog wrote something about it. I can't remember. It wasn't the audacity of Tope, which was funny. <laughs> and I've never, and I'm having dinner with Ariana Huffington tonight, who, who wrote it. And I kind of, I always say, look, at, we're friends and I can't believe you. It's clever. So I, I'm glad you took the line, but you know, but the, um, the interesting thing, he, he, he saw all of it and would say to me, oh, I saw that so-and-so criticized the rug or whatever. And he'd really? Like, oh God, it's, it's, un it's unbelievable his capacity for information. I mean, when he came, when James is a investor and he came to Spain to visit us, for a kind of official visit. There were like people at the table and one of them was a kind of very esteemed cancer researcher. And he knew all about his research and the pros and cons of it. And the thing. I mean, it's kind of, it's quite amazing to watch. So that room I knew would be really important. And one of the things that I did in, in rooms like in, in the same way of putting the stripe in the Oval Office was some of the rooms had a kind of eccentric scale that was maybe too big for the function. So I want to kind of compress them and make them more manageable and more mm. comfortable, you know, in terms of, you know, you in, in space, I wanted to make them a little bit more approachable and that, that grass cloth in that room really did it. And then the idea of having the Caitlin's, which are so amazing, opposite the Susan Rothenberg. Yeah, the, the Caitlins are, are astonishing. They're so beautiful. And this idea, again, of one of the great, you, you were talking about the others. I mean, you know, Native Americans, clearly we have some catching up to do with representation. And that is one of the places where I felt that at least the depiction of that point in American history where we're kind of going out into the world and, you know, kind of pursuing the sort of frontierism and the kind of interesting aspect of it, but also to be mindful of the impact of it. And then when you get to the Oval Office, I borrowed from the Smithsonian Native American pottery. And it's one, again, we're talking about these, these crazy things that happen that are kind of about being thoughtful and you don't realize that you set a domino thing into motion, but that this woman, we got this email saying, I'm a Native American potter, and one of the pots in the shelves is mine. 
we had had no idea that there were that there was a living potter who we had borrowed from the Smithsonian. But I mean, that was amazing because it was sort of like, and just this letter that was so filled with um, excitement and um, that this that this Native American potter from the West had a piece in the shelves of the Oval Office, which was great. I mean, so those things ha would happen because I call it, it's really weird. It's a very weird analogy, but it's sort of like loading paper into a printer or something. You kind of, you kind of start, you know, kind of doing things in a nice way. And, and then it's crazy because later when things would come out, they would be sort of accidents. You know, I, I talk about the putting apples in the Oval Office and then people, I had no idea that people would take them as a memento instead of losing <laughs> They were losing dozens of apples. And then to this day, President Obama still eats like, you know, has apples around all the time. And I, I think it was because he would eat a couple every day and people would take them and eat them. And then people would take them as mementos from going to the Oval Office. And, you know, I had no idea that this stuff or kids would take them. It was something a kid could take away. And, you know, it's just it just started out trying to be thoughtful and then it would kind of you would do these seeds of things and they would sort of flower into kind of unexpected ways, which is great. I think your, your version of the yellow oval room was really spectacular. I think as iconic as the Kennedy version was, but I liked what I liked so much about what you did this time. It's a, it, it, it had a murky feeling to it. I mean, it was sort of <laughs> sexy and, the, the tone of the yellow was interesting and seeing the reflections off of those sort of green and blue paintings. I mean, it, it was, I don't want to use the word aquatic, but there was something about it that made me just, it ennobled the space in a way that just felt right for that moment. Well, I mean, it's interesting. If you really look, if you really look at the way the Kennedy version of that room was put into place it's beautiful but it's not really i always got the sense that it really wasn't finished right what was kind of crazy about some of mrs kennedy's writings and notes and things were that there was a long list of things she wanted for the white house but just didn't i mean look it's the amount of time there which was so tragically right. shortened is not as much as people think also, the the process from beginning to end, I mean, she was organized and they were very quick about stuff they did, but it's still, I mean, it was a lot, the behemoth of reworking the whole building was kind of a, a really bold but time-consuming project. You know, I think I wanted it to be kind of this fusion of where the Obamas met and where the Kennedy legacy of the White House met. And I think that part of it, my, my intention was, you know, these sort of French chairs that we covered in this kind of russet brown velvet, those had been in the Kennedy room. And then I think never again until we brought them out of storage. But, you know, I, James and I, I gave a carpet, I gave this Ushak that's in the room. We gave these Louis XVI dining chairs because they had kind of these mid 19th century uh, reproductions of, of kind of English, sort of English dining chairs and mm. stuff in there. So it was, it was not fully resolved as a room in terms of aesthetically, I think. And then Mrs. Reagan, who I spoke to a lot about the room, had done this kind of raspberry and yellow combination, which is just, just not my favorite color mm. combination. It's just, I mean, it was, it was beautiful in photographs and I'm sure it was beautiful. I never saw it when it was done, but there was some of the, the sort of echo of that color scheme. And because that blue green is so beautiful with 
the Cezans that are in the room. And I don't know if you know about the story, but there were a gift, I, I think it's in the book, but there was a gift given to the White House of I think four or five Cezans. Right. And they uh, were, they're owned jointly by the National Gallery and by the White House. And there's a story that somehow they were kept at the National Gallery and they hadn't either made it to the White House or they'd been sent away or something. And that Mrs. Kennedy had called the head of the National Gallery who was, um, I'm totally blanking right now, um, very famous head of the National Gallery. Anyway, called and said, I'd like the Saison's back. So that, that green, the yellow, that blue green is so, for me, so synonymous with, with Mrs. Obama. She wears the color all the time. She looks amazing in that mm -hmm. color. And it felt like it was this kind of fusion of weaving together all these aspects of history, both color-wise and, you know, kind of flushing out the furniture choices in the room because they're amazing things. There's like a desk I think the Reitzmans gave. There's mm -hmm. like, I mean, there's amazing stuff in there. Well, and plus you've got storage. The storage is the great fake out of American history because you think it's like, I thought it was going to be like Treasures of the Inca and you go and it's like <laughs> basically, no, not really. Anything good really is in the building. You okay. know, anything, anything that, I mean, there's few things, but not really... I mean, they're historic, but because there's no deacquisition in the White House, you would be surprised at how, you know, there's a, um, a copy of Lincoln's Bed given by Gypsy Rosalie. I mean, there's stuff like kooky, <laughs> kooky stuff, a rocker from Reagan, you know, stuff that's kooky, but not necessarily Miles of Duncan Fife or, right. you know, Louis Sixteen. No, 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 no. <laughs> but anyway, but that room was really the... the the reason I put it on the cover too is I think a, it's such a beautiful that Latrobe that oval is so beautiful, and it's really the crossroads between so many different things, right? It's the crossroads between presidential family history and the Obamas. It's the Obamas understanding and really loving that room and loving the the backyard, which is the Truman mm -hmm. balcony, and their appreciation of how you know for them this is a very formal room compared to their their house in Chicago, but they really they really were comfortable. It was a, they really liked it. They would have friends over and they would use that room in a way that kind of gave me great pleasure that they had that their aesthetic had spliced with this sort of very historic building in a way which was very personal and kind of warm. And then it's also the sort of airlock between the private use of the that apartment upstairs right. for them which you know many presidents the clintons whatever had you you know lots of people had stayed up the stairs and stuff you know obamas didn't really do that that really wasn't they really wanted to keep that as a private you know kind of sanctuary for their family unit and i think it was really smart and it, it you know there i there are a lot of senior people who'd worked for the Obamas who'd never been upstairs. I mean, it was kind of lovely. It's like, you know, they really kept it as, as a family sort of house upstairs and it was great. So this was the one place where, you know, state dinners, cocktail bar, by tradition, that room is a sort of portal between the private and the public. And also, I mean, architecturally, historically, uh, aesthetically, that just felt so, much where we could kind of weave all these elements together, unlike something like the blue room right below, mm -hmm. which is so set in its kind of 
look and feel and function. They could really inhabit this space in a way which was kind of the most interesting. I like that layering of history because what I enjoyed enormously in reading the book was seeing you and your team's deep dive into the history of the White House down to the, the silhouette of a curtain, say from four administrations ago or something like that, and figuring out how to echo that in a modern, up-to-date way. It's like you're living within footnotes in a way, which must have been enormous fun creatively for you, but also very meaningful for this very historic first family. Yeah, I mean, yes, absolutely. I think, I think that you are never immune to the weight of history. I talked to, the, to President Obama about a bunch of various sort of questions, stuff I had for him for the book. And then, you know, he, he gave me, and I, I talked to him a lot about it. And then I decided really that I wanted it to be, I didn't want to necessarily focus 100% on, on, on all that, you know, because I think he's, you know, his book about history and stuff is, or his book about his tenure and stuff is going to be really impactful and amazing. And I didn't want to distract from, from sort of how, where we were and stuff. And I mean, honestly, he was really busy writing the book. But the one thing that I really always asked him about was where did he really feel the weight the most? Like, where did you really feel what room did you really sort of have this sense of history? And I think that clearly the oval is, is the obvious. And for me, I felt that kind of everywhere, you know? I mean, I felt that like you just have this, this sort of cinematic sense of every single place of having this, this sort of almost spiritual kind of weight of things kind of not closing down you because it's not a, it's not a limiting thing. It's just, but it's present, right? It's a present sort of energy of how, how it felt. And for as many times as I've been to the White House, I never, you never feel um, blasé about it, right? You never feel like, I mean, it's, it's kind of inspiring and kind of has a sense of awe every time you walk in. And I, and I think that that, from my standpoint, too, I think we, you would share this being, you know, like things like, you know, the bathroom off the queen's bedroom, which has like this, you know, chaise perche kind of thing over it, which is so mm -hmm. funny, but so kind of Janssen-y and kind of, you know, that no one ever bothered to get rid of it ever. It's just still there. Or the, the queen's sitting room, which is the most untouched, pure Kennedy era Janssen thing of all time, right? It's like this kind of holy grail of decorating. And it's just like, but those things exist in various degrees everywhere throughout the whole building. And I think that it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing, but you are aware if you move a chair, it's essentially historic. Do you know what I mean? You kind of, right. it, it's like everything leaves a mark in the sand kind of. And that, that's sort of interesting. And then things like you walk through the building and you see this Monet given by the Kennedy family in honor of John, President Kennedy. And I mean, it's just, you know, there's a lot of emotion, a lot of patriotic thing a lot of sadness you know there's a lot of sadness and and you sense well this is where lincoln's son died and this is where you know it's like you you it's it's a very rich environment 
It's a rare, it's a very rich air. I think that I was constantly kind of aware of, of, of it and, and really respectful of it. Michael, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and talking about designing history and taking us upstairs virtually in the White House. I love the book. Thanks so much for having me. It was really, it's, I'm a huge fan of, of this podcast. I'm a huge fan of your, your columns that you've written over the years. And uh, uh, I hope you'll have me, hope I do something else that I can come on again one day, maybe Buckingham Palace or something. Excellent, shoot high. <laughs> <laughs> The Aesthete is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wurtzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com.